Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Titian Palazzi, COO and co-founder at NIST. That's M-Y-S-T, a machine learning platform that enables data scientists to create predictive forecasts for energy use cases. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Titian at MIST, and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. I was excited for today's episode because MIST is taking a technology approach that's tried and true in the cloud compute space and are applying it to the energy sector. They're helping data scientists access data and build models that make renewable energy projects more profitable and make the energy grid more efficient. And with a founding team from Google and the Rocky Mountain Institute, they have a unique blend of experience to execute on this. We have a great discussion about the different energy use cases that more accurate predictive modeling can help, the customer types that use MIST today, and the transition of data science talent into the climate space. Titian, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have you on here today. You know, you were originally referred to us by Jules Kortenhorst at Rocky Mountain Institute, who was a guest on the show a couple months ago. And I know that the two of you worked together previously. You were at RMI. So maybe let's start with just a little bit of your own background. We'll obviously dive into Mist.ai and what the company does, but I first, we'd love to hear from you. How did you get into working on climate change in the first place? Definitely. Happy to share. Academically, I, I studied environment and engineering originally in the Netherlands, which is where I'm from. And then that also led me to come to the States. So I did part of my master's at MIT in 2011, 2012. And then had the opportunity through a few different paths to work with Amory Lovins, founder of RMI, for about two years as his special aid. Amory had been a, a mentor of mine since I was in high school 
and I had always greatly admired his perspective on the energy transition, that really business can be a force for good in this transition, and that we can bring everyone along by speaking to different constituents' individual benefits and what they care about. So Amory brought me to RMI, and RMI was an amazing place. Uh, when I joined, we were, I think, about 100 people. Jules and I joined roughly at the same time, so he took the helm as CEO about that time in 2014 or so. So it grew to about 200 until I left. And it was such a great learning environment with super smart, kind, knowledgeable people, fully committed to the energy transition. So it was a wonderful schooling environment. Yeah, and they've done great work with things like their derivative and everything too, just in terms of really supporting not just business efforts broadly in the climate space, but entrepreneurial efforts in particular, which I think is is really powerful. And obviously, I believe they're involved with Canary Media and just a whole host of different ways that they've helped bring more people into the energy transition, which is great. So also a big fan of, of the work they're doing. So, so you, you did some time there, built a good foundation of knowledge that complemented your educational background. And then you decided to jump into doing a startup. How did, how did that path go for you? So I, I think maybe this is a, a good point to sort of like share two perspectives. So from my side, mine and, and that of my co-founder, from my side in the years I spent with Amory and then later I was on RMI's electricity team. One of the things I could witness from very close by was how different players in the energy transition were dealing with increasing amounts of renewables on the grid. So we would work in types of different types of technical consulting with a variety of utilities, mostly in North America for my part. And we could see how they were struggling to understand, should we place batteries here or there on our grid? And how do we run this thing if we now suddenly have all this variable renewable energy generation? So I saw if we are going to go to a carbon-free power system, there are certain blockers that need to be removed. And this specific one around making sure the whole grid works in a reliable, carbon-free and low-cost manner was one where I thought technology was a particularly good fit. I co-founded MIST with Peter, my co-founder, who uh, I knew from the Netherlands. And when I went to MIT, he actually joined Nest in the early days, I think there were fewer than 100 people there then as a software engineer. And he helped Nest develop the original demand response algorithms, rush hour rewards, and then built a variety of large-scale software projects for Nest that leveraged machine learning in a variety of ways. He was there when they, they were acquired by Google for $3 billion and then stayed at Google for a long time. And so he had a very complementary view and skill set where he had seen, look, when it comes to predicting the future, in a sort of like short-term manner. Machine learning is an amazing fit, but it's also really tough to do this well because it's highly complex. You're getting data from millions or billions of data points. There is an opportunity to do this in a way that sort of like is really standardized and can be leveraged by many people. And so that was the nexus of MIST that led us to start the company together, to explore initially and then later start the company together. He left Google, I left RMI in 2018, and that was the, the origin story. Super cool. And actually, we, Tony Fidel from Nest was also just recently on the My Climate Journey podcast. So fun to hear the, the convergence of, of those paths as well. Maybe talk a bit about, okay, so you two knew each other. You each had these disparate experiences, but working in strangely similar problem sets. Maybe let's start with actually revealing like what is Mist.ai and then talk about how you how you got to how you got to realize that was the specific area you wanted to focus on. Yeah. So what we do at Mist is we help companies 
all kinds of energy companies. So renewable power generators, load-serving entities like utilities, but also distributed energy resource companies. So maybe EV charging companies or companies that install behind-the-meter batteries create highly accurate short-term forecasts that they use to operate whatever they operate, to manage their electricity demand or to make sure that their solar and wind assets are earning the revenue that they committed to their investors or to make sure that a, a building minimizes its energy costs. That's what we do. We got to this space really, I think, back from those sort of like original perspectives that I shared. But maybe to sort of like add a bit more color there. So in 2018, we started And in the early days, we focused primarily on basically working very closely with a handful of load-serving entities. So this is energy jargon. Basically, it means any kind of company that serves end customers with electricity. They could be utilities, but sometimes they don't operate the grid. And so technically, they're not a utility in, in the United States way of naming things. And so we just, you know, we'd spend time with them. We would go on site, we'd spend a week or sometimes weeks working with our technical teams to really figure out what is challenging when it comes to managing your electricity demand. What is the financial impact when things don't go well? How does this change as more renewables are added to the grid? And what's a place for us to help? And those early explorations, it was really user research, led us to conclude that uh, both on the the shifting winds, so in the sense that the weather is changing. You know, we see increasingly frequently extreme weather events. Energy demand patterns are changing. So, for example, in California, we went in the last 10 years from very few homes with rooftop solar to lots of them. In Australia, this is even more strongly the case. Electric vehicles are being added. Periods like COVID, you know, dramatically shift energy patterns. So one of the problems we unearthed was that This led to these companies basically flying blind, and there was really an opportunity to add technology to the mix, both to reveal these kinds of patterns more quickly in a way that they were not facing undue risk, to enable them to integrate more renewables, and also to do this in a way where the technology they were using was highly reliable. Because the other thing is, you need to make decisions every day or maybe even every minute, and (laughs) you cannot face a system that, that fails. Yeah. And so if I understand, I live in California, so I'll come at it with a a use case that I understand, which is residential energy use in California. As you mentioned, over the last decade, you've seen an increased number of rooftop solar projects going live from a distributed energy perspective. So, you know, you're seeing that I assume the demand curve less spiky in the middle of the day, because now you're able to power, you're feeding more electrons back onto the grid through solar. But at the same time, you've also seen a pretty substantial growth in EV adoption. So I'm guessing between 6 to 8 p.m., all of a sudden you're starting to see these huge spikes in energy usage when people are coming home from work and plugging in their EVs. And so that is a, I assume, a gradually, both of those are gradually growing trends over time that presumably you're helping your customers understand. But then you also have sort of real-time events that are happening like an upcoming weather event that you're, you're seeing coming through or I don't know, you tell me what some of the other things that may be hitting. And my understanding is you're helping these customers sort of measure the inputs of both of these in terms of being able to supply the right amount of power to the grid. Is that, am I understanding correctly? Completely. And so if we stick with the, because we serve a variety of customers, but if we stick, for example, with the California utilities for a while, so we serve a variety of mostly community choice aggregators. So they might be providing power to your home. 
And for example, in 2020, you may remember we had the, you know, August and September heat waves, fires, Orange Day, Mars Day. In that time, when the California ISO and the California Energy Commission did their retrospective on what happened, one of the three root causes they identified that led to these outages was actually the fact that individual market participants had not been accurately predicting what their energy demand would be. And it's made complicated exactly because of the reasons that you mentioned. So we see part of our job as to make sure that all the data that has predictive value is there for us or for our clients to make those predictions so that the grid is more stable and individual market participants don't face up to risk. And what's the status quo without you? Like how have, how have they been managing this in the past? Well, that, I mean, that's one reason why, you know, the technology progresses, but also in concert often with market demands. So I think one thing is that a lot of this is enabled by AI, cloud-based infrastructure, etc. But a lot of it also comes from the demand side. So 10, 20 years ago, you could probably be okay by taking sort of like similar day values or even just using averages. Like what we did yesterday is probably fine today, but that no longer cuts it. And so often the status quo is an Excel spreadsheet where you take the average over the last few months and you know changes such as more EV adoption are either put in by hand or are not incorporated at all. We talked about the California use case. Let's take a different use case like Texas, right? We had the big extreme event a couple winters ago where they had abnormally cold winter. Texas, I think, has a very different grid mix than California. They, you know, they're mostly powered by gas during the day and then at night, heavy wind usage on the Texas grid, as I understand it. And all of a sudden you have these abnormal cold snaps coming through a place that doesn't normally freeze. In what way could MIST have helped there and and sort of, again, what was the status quo in that environment? Yeah, maybe what I'll emphasize is that we've so far spoken about the load serving entities, but this is really a, a variety of players, all of whom we serve. So in Texas, actually, in addition to some big retail energy providers, we also help a variety of owners of battery storage and renewables, so solar and wind. Sometimes those are coupled, but often they're also separate. And so we might help those kinds of companies to anticipate what might come and therefore ensure that, for example, their grid-scale batteries are fully charged because there is a high probability that some kind of price spike will occur. Let's also be clear, I think that's important to do, what happened during URI in February of last year was not something that a more accurate forecast would have eliminated. This was in part due to structural issues with insufficient investment in weatherization of gas lines and pumps and other things. But it could have been a contributing factor to help some of these companies reduce the amount of generation that was offline. Awesome. Yeah. So let's maybe dive into some of the different use cases for forecasting. In fact, one of the things I saw in, in a blog post you all recently published was, you know, the, the US power grid boasts something like 99.9% uptime and still has more power outages than any other developed country, which I thought was a really interesting data point. But in that same article, you sort of talk about the four use cases for forecasting, one being balancing the grid, two being optimizing renewables, three being dispatching battery storage, which you just talked about a little bit, and four being operating virtual power plants. Maybe go into each of those a bit and just you know, unpack how you know, a, a proper forecasting mechanism can support each of those use cases with better accuracy than how they're operating today. Totally. And then I'll also sort of tell you why we 
enumerated in that way because I think we have a, a vision for what we are that actually comes more from the, the non-climate space, more from the technology space. So I think we touched on some of these already. So for grids, for the load-serving entities within them, but also for the independent system operators or the other kinds of entities that are balancing the grids. One thing that is absolutely necessary to ensure that there are no outages, especially on the sort of shorter term, day by day or hour by hour basis, is to have a good insight into renewable production, thermal generation production, so fossil fuels, gas, coal, nuclear, as well as energy demand. And so for these kinds of entities, which is not, not to date our primary customer segment, they need aggregate level forecasts, sometimes built from a sort of like disaggregated manner. In the sort of second and third categories that you mentioned, which is where we see most of the growth of our customer base, which is front of meter or utility scale, solar and wind assets and battery storage assets. What we're seeing is the world has shifted in the last 10 years from most of those kinds of renewable types to have long-term fully guaranteed offtake contracts with no market exposure to basically all of them having some kind of exposure to the market. And so what matters for these kinds of companies is that they are dispatching their assets in a way that serve the grid, decarbonize power, but also ensure returns on their investment. And so we help those kinds of companies typically with a variety of price forecasts, as well as if it is solar or wind production forecasts that then really lead them to make their daily or hourly decisions, sometimes with trading teams or market operations teams, sometimes in a fully automated fashion, which we see more of, especially when it comes to batteries in ERCOT, for example, which are often dispatched on a, on a five-minute basis. And then the final one that you mentioned, which is actually... I think an important growth segment for our company, if, if we looked like at the five or 10 year horizon, is everything DERs. So EV chargers, behind the meter, battery storage, energy demand, these kinds of things. We're starting to see more and more inbound attraction to our products from those market segments. Companies that say, look, we are optimizing energy demand across 20 industrial sites or 200 industrial sites. Can we use your technology and build our own forecasts? And so we see a lot of growth there too. DERs being distributed energy resources for folks who you know, aren't fully up to speed on all of the climate and energy lingo. So things like solar panels and ways that people can generate energy outside of utilities. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you for, for adding that. Totally agree. And so, but then maybe to, to sort of like share, why do we serve so many segments? I think really when we look at MIST, what we, the lesson we see, the vision we see for the company is that we are kind of a, a layer in the tech stack of all of these kinds of companies. So any company operating in electricity markets in the next 10 years needs to have predictive power. And we can offer that to them very much like a company might use Stripe or Shopify to enable their online payments or store. And that generic sort of like technology approach allows us to unblock parts of the things that need to be in place for the energy transition to happen. As a startup, has it been hard to build go-to-market capabilities across so many different customer, customer types and needs? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things, that, so I think we've gone through them sequentially. And I think that sometimes we're focused on one and others come to us. I think we've been very disciplined. And so I think that has made it a lot easier. I would say the other thing that we found is that it is imperative in any of these segments that you build domain expertise, even if you are just creating tools for your customers to be able to empathize with them, actually understand where value originates 
and also guide them in building these predictive models, which at the end really depend in large part on the quality of the data that goes into them. So going through those use cases, just want to kind of touch on sort of what I heard from you and how that might apply to what I understand being somewhat the theory of change of how how MIST not only is a viable business, but how MIST helps with climate change. And, you know, I heard balancing the grid, which I assume are these mostly large enterprise scale utilities and whatnot, and they are potentially could use you for helping to divert more supply to being produced by renewables based on what they're seeing. But I heard you say that the bulk of your current business comes from optimizing renewables and dispatching battery storage, which to me, what I'm hearing from your theory of change is right now, what you're trying to do is make the renewables business more profitable, which will thus result in more renewables projects winning out in terms of getting deployment. Is that broadly accurate? That is very accurate. So I'd say high-level theory of changes. This is a foundational component to the energy transition across these four buckets. Let's make it easy, fast for everyone to do it. In renewable and storage asset owners, that is indeed the theory of change. Maybe to give some numbers, where we are now is we have about 1,000 gigawatts of solar and wind installed globally, roughly, for each. And we need to get to 5,000 of each by 2030, according to BNEF and IPCC. So that's 5x growth in seven years. And so anything that can be done to make those, make more investments flow there, but also honestly to unblock scaling of the renewable asset developers and owners is critical. It's where, again, IPCC says 75% of the emission reduction in the next eight years is going to come from new solar, new wind. And so are these are these projects using you in the upfront financial projection side of things to anticipate IRRs or are they using you in day-to-day operations for the yeah, most part? No, great question. Right now, exclusively in day-to-day operations. And the reason I use the word sort of like accelerating them is that what we've seen for clients is that it, if you would do all of the work that we're doing sort of in a truly open source manner, you're probably spending one to two years of software engineering time with a five to 10 person team doing this. And we simply do not have that luxury as a society, but also as individual companies, they cannot wait so long. So we're making sure that this specific part of the, call it the stack of their activities is unblocked and they can move faster. And what are the primary data sources you're pulling in? Like how, how does a project operator today actually leverage you and what are they using from a decision-making perspective in terms of the data you're providing? I guess if I'm, if I'm running a utility scale solar plant, solar farm, what am I actually getting from MIST and how is that helping me? Yeah, totally. So I think that if you are a utility scale solar farm and you consider working with us, there are basically two things you need to believe. The first thing you need to believe is that you care or you, you will find it attractive to own some of the analytics that about your assets in-house, certainly in the long term. Because part of where we have gone from a product perspective is enabling our clients to contribute to or to own IP of their predictive models. That's the first. The second thing is you need to believe that by capturing the physical phenomena in machine learning models, you can predict the things that matter for you with high accuracy. And so to then answer your question of what is the data that you provide, it depends on the use case. If we're talking about renewable production, for example, we offer 
weather data inputs, so historical and forecasts from our library of third-party data providers. If we're talking about price formation, you're looking at a much larger variety of data. So in addition to the things I mentioned, also historical prices, gas prices, are there scheduled outages for generators or for transmission lines? All these kinds of things. Weather, of course, is a tremendous factor. And then either we or our users on the platform stitch those things together into a model and then assess what has the highest predictive power. And, you know, utility scale uh, solar farm may not have even been the best customer type for you. I mean, it sounds like it's, it's going to be more like large scale demand response aggregators and the like who are probably more likely using you in the near term. Is that accurate? Or I guess well, it's all of the above. It's, exactly. It's all of the above. So big solar farms now, especially the newer ones, often, you know, their revenues depend on the market price. So they can do smart things around when they sell, if there is dispatchability because of batteries, when they dispatch. And so shorter term predictions matter a lot. Excellent. And I'd love to, you know, talk about how you've sort of financed the business to date. I know you've raised a couple of rounds of financing. It seems like Gradient Ventures, which I think is Google's AI fund, led your initial seed round. And I'm sure it didn't hurt that, you know, Peter had a, a nice Google background coming into that. And then you raised a Series A a couple of years ago now from Valo Ventures. And maybe share a bit about what that pathway has looked like and sort of how you view needing to capital. I mean, you're a software-based business, so I assume, you know, you're, you're a capital light but would love to hear how you view needing to finance the, the company. Totally. I mean, <laughs> your historical perspective was accurate. So Valo and Gradient are our primary investors through the two rounds we've done so far, about 8 million to date. And then we're preparing for our next round. And I think you're totally right. So, you know, 85% of our team is engineers and data scientists. Our team is actually, right now, our technical team is fully in the Bay Area. And as we grow... We'll grow that, so we'll grow everything that's product-related, but we're also going to invest significantly more in our go-to-market because a large part of making this successful is actually having a really close collaboration with our clients. And those today sit exclusively in the US and Europe, but we see a future in which we serve other areas of the globe too. And from a competition perspective, do you view competition coming from other players who are doing almost the same approach as you, but just, you know, claiming to have better accuracy on forecasts? Do you see competition coming from, from companies that have a other forms of revenue coming in, like a demand response aggregator who has to get good at forecasting for their own use case and decides to platformize their technology? Like, how do you see the market evolving for you over the next few years? I guess you also mentioned that, you know, you saw that helping with operationalizing of virtual power plants being a, a large growth engine for you in the coming five plus years. So that may be some degree a signal of how you see your business evolving, but curious what you see, how you see the market landscape changing. Totally. I think that's honestly one of the most exciting parts because even though we started in the first two years, in the first two years, all of our revenue came from us essentially building predictive models for clients, productionizing them and giving them access through APIs and web dashboards and these kinds of things. But now increasingly, we are actually enabling clients to build their own predictive models. And that's super exciting. I think this really, we really look at Mist. It's also what we call our, our product much more as a platform that enables clients. And so what that means is that really, when we have early conversations with technology leaders at our clients, often the way we describe it is, is in this way. You have a, a choice of a spectrum of choices. On the one hand, you can go with end-to-end -end solutions. So those might be forecasting services, companies that are really good at predicting market prices or predicting 
wind production at a site or predicting energy demand. There is a, in each of those segments, there is at least a handful of players. Or you might go for end-to-end more integrated solutions. So you might go for companies that offer a full asset management solution for your battery, for example. And I think that's fine. I think the benefits there are that it is probably relatively fast and you do not need to worry about building in-house expertise. On the other hand, if you say, look, for the value of our company and for our future revenues, it is imperative that we build expertise, that we have something to say about how we operate this group of assets or our low portfolio, you could build everything in-house and you could hire five or 10 software engineers and build this from scratch, you know, leveraging open source tools and the big cloud providers toolboxes. But that's probably going to take you a while. It will take you, you know, to configure everything so it works for you. It will take you two years, three years, if you're lucky. And then there's maintenance on top of that. And so what we say that there is really a third way where we sort of sit in the middle, where we, from day one, enable data scientists and analysts to build predictive models. You can do it totally yourself. All IP resides with you. Or if you need some of our help in the early days, we can help you build your first models based on our in-house expertise. But we're taking you on a journey where we're helping you build this own internal IP in a way that it is not dependent on any one engineer on your staff, but it sits in a platform where it can be used across engineers. And you're not being held back by two years of build-it-yourself investment. And so really for that key customer, you know, you are a data API provider who you just have to be really good at knowing, anticipating what data sets they're going to need access to and ensuring that you have the most accurate versions of those data sets for them to utilize. Is that correct? That's a core component, but we are really what, what we call to use some tech lingo, a machine learning operations platform for everything time series. And so, a so they'll build the models them. on your technology. Oh, stack. yeah. Totally. Okay. And productionize them on our, okay. our, our stack. And, and we're responsible to make sure that every minute the models run as necessary for them. So drawing parallels here, you know, I, obviously there's so many parallels between what's happening in energy and what, ha- what has happened over the last decade in cloud compute. Drawing parallels here, there's obviously huge businesses that SAP and IBM and others and Google operate and Amazon operate in terms of enabling you to build predictive capabilities for cloud compute power. I'm hearing similar feedback from you. It's just where the data sets are, are around electron usage and, and sort of you know, exogenous effects like weather. You're totally right. And so to put another thing out there, sort of like a belief is that what we're seeing and what, what you must trust to think that MIS is going to be a big company is that there is value of the domain expertise, even in a generic platform. And because we've spent you know, four years and we're investing a lot in building that expertise, also on our own team, that allows us to not only bring in the right external data sources, but also to unlock certain functionality on top of the generic functionality that really helps these companies. But you are right. I think that it is very, the shift that you, that you describe is very similar and we see it, we've seen it happen in the last 10 years. Yep, Microsoft too. Don't want don't to not give Microsoft <laughs> a shout out. They obviously are a big player in the space also. So what's, what's live today and what's next? Yeah, I mean, so the company is about four years old. We're about 20 people, 20 full-time staff. We're getting close to 20 enterprise clients in the US and Europe, including some of the largest. So the world's three largest power companies are all missed clients and then many more. And as I shared earlier, we're, we're getting ready for our next phase of growth. So growing the company to really expand both within some of the companies we already serve, as well as accessing new clients. 
And one of the things that's been most exciting for us, also for our technical team, is to see that you know, after years of product development, we're now really seeing an acceleration of this self-service approach. So the growth we've had in the last six months is as much as we've seen in full years previously. So um, we're scaling. That's not bad. <laughs> Retition, what didn't I ask? What haven't we covered that is important to, to make sure to communicate? I'll close with two thoughts. I think one is the change we see in electricity is a tremendous opportunity. Already today, there is about $1 trillion spent globally on electricity yearly, about a percent of global GDP. And it's only going to be more. You know, It might, it might be $2 trillion, It's gigantic. And going back to the IPCC thing, this is one of the most urgently needed shift. So I would say anybody who is working on accelerating solar and wind deployment, go hard. We need this. The second thing I'll say is from a technology perspective, this is a really exciting challenge. And so what we're seeing is the shift we see in talent of all kinds, but including software engineering to the climate space is so needed. And we're really grateful for all the great people who have already come our way through communities like MCJ. And as I, I shared, we're scaling. And so anybody listening to this who feels particularly drawn to this kind of challenge that we're going after, please reach out. You can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Send us a DM and we're happy to chat. Yeah, and I, I will just underscore the, the amount of talent in things like data science and machine learning that we're at MCJ Collective that we're seeing every day join our member community and say, put their hand up and say, hey, you know, I've spent the last decade optimizing advertising yields and I'm realizing that my skills can maybe be put to work in other areas that I care about personally, like helping to grow renewable power generation or helping to, you know, work on things like synthetic biology. That's all just really inspiring. And I think, you know, for anybody out there who's in data science or machine learning, obviously it sounds like Mist would be interested in hearing from you if your interest is in moving into, into that space. Great. Anything else you need help with right now? You've got, you know, you've got our, our audience and our listeners and our member community tuned in to you at the moment. Great talent. Please reach out, share the word. If you are running a solar wind battery storage operator, or you're running a climate tech company and you realize this is important, I see an opportunity for partnering, please also send us a note. And Cody, thank you for having us. Tishan, thanks so much for your time. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.